We are live. All right, greetings everyone and welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on air. I'm your host for this hangout. It's my first time here. Uh, I'm Trey Smith, a teacher consultant with the Philadelphia Writing Project and the 2015-16 science teacher in residence at the Library of Congress. Today is July 14th, 2016, and I'm excited to be here with colleagues to discuss how, by using historical primary sources, educators can create learning experiences for youth grounded in authentic, open-ended problems. Today's conversation may well include just as many questions as it does answers, which I'm cool with and I hope you are too. Uh, the team we have assembled here today is very much in the initial stages of exploring the use of primary sources with an eye toward problem and project-based learning. I'll let everyone introduce themselves shortly, but a few more things before we get started. For those of you uh, watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post thoughts, ideas, questions via the Q&A feature embedded in the video player, or you can tweet questions and follow along using the hashtags ConnectedLearning and hashtag two, the number two, NextPres. And this programming is tied to the Letters to the Next President uh, 2.0 project from the National Writing Project. And this uh, Letters to the Next President really encourages youth to engage uh, youth age 13 to 18 uh, with research writing and making media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in this election. So go to letters, the number two, president.org for more details. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. You can also participate. There's a live chat happening in the chat role feature on the Ed Innovator webinar page for this conversation. This can be accessed at educatorinnovator.org slash webinars. We'll also be live tweeting the conversation from at, in, in, uh, excuse me, at innovates underscore ed. And why don't we just get started and we'll start by having everyone introduce themselves. So Beth, can you start? Absolutely. Thanks, Trey. I'm really excited to be here and, you know, to ask questions. So my name is Beth Reimer and I'm the co-director of the Ohio Writing Project at Miami University and part of the National Writing Project's College Ready Writers Program leadership team. Uh, Casey, can you go next? Hi, I'm Casey. I'm sorry my video is not working. I teach 5th and 6th grade social studies at Convent Elementary School in San Francisco. Um, and we we've been focusing a lot on current events in our social studies class, so I'm excited to, to be here. And Regina, can you go? Hi guys, I'm Regina Wallace and I'm the Social Studies Coordinator for Clayton County Public Schools in Georgia. And currently my school district is implementing a kindergarten through 12th grade document-based questions program using primary sources. So very excited about what's going on through this project. And Kathy. Hi everyone, I'm Kathy McGuigan from the Library of Congress. I'm an education resource specialist and I work with teachers throughout the country on using the digital materials of the library's collections. I look forward to a really robust conversation today and thanks for, for having me. All right, thanks everybody. And uh, we're going to get started by actually doing something that the Library of Congress does a lot with teachers and encourages teachers to do with students, which is to start with a primary source. And so we'll start uh, this conversation with a primary source and we'll put a link um, to this up in uh, the chat roll in a second, but I, I'm showing it on my screen now, if you can see it on my screen. Um, and so what I'd like for you to do, and this will, I'm ask, actually asking everybody who's in this chat with me too, uh, to take a look here. Uh, but if you'll take a second and think about what, what stands out to you about this. What do you notice uh, right now is something I'd like for you to think about. All right, does anything, does anything stand out to anybody? And you can unmute yourselves if you uh, have something. I, by the way, they haven't seen this. Uh, no one on this the webinar has seen this yet. So um, is there anything that stands out? 
the spelling. All right, what about it? Certainteed. All right. Definitely for me the um, Uncle Sam figure and the words right next to that fulfills the government standard of quality. So that whole kind of um, government nature or um, believing in the government. All right, anything else stand out? The fact that government and quality, um, obviously government would be like the capitalization of those two words kind of stood out to me for, for some reason um, pretty quickly once I started looking. Right, well, let me zoom in. There might be some other things, and it can just be things that you think are really obvious, but you just want to point them out. It's the same, uh, same ad, but I'm just going to zoom in for you a little bit. Oh, okay. All right, what do you notice? What stands out? The use of a paint can. Like ingredients listed with, um, you know, some percentages or something next to it. Um. We'll zoom in on that in a minute, all right? So, okay. so we see some percentages, um, some kind of comparison maybe. Other things you notice? I'm putting you on the spot today. <laughs> that it's house right. and that it's, I mean, that whole, like, guaranteed and certainty, I see a couple of right. times repeated. Um, I definitely see that. And it's house paint, so it's... And the 100% at the bottom, like the, um, I can't really read, I think it says pigment and, and vehicle, maybe, and the 100%, like, proving that it's certain or it's, it's certain to work. Right, because it says oxide of zinc, uh, basic level pigment variables, but everything adds up to a hundred percent. And can you can you uh, look a little bit closer to it? Maybe the descriptions of what these different percentages are. Can you can you tell? Can you read any of those words there? It looks like they're the chemical, like lead, lead. carbonate, zinc, magnesium, silicone. Turpentine, linseed oil. All right, so we've got some ingredients here that you're noticing. I'm wondering, and by the way, with students, uh, we'll go through, we'll show you some tools that we use to help students uh, access and think about some of these items. Uh, I'm wondering, another thing I'm interested in are what questions are coming up for you right now. Do you have some questions about this item uh, as you're looking, about, looking at it? So I have a question just because, the, and then the bottom thing that you didn't set, notice was that it says government specifications for white and tinted paints. So from a, the department, some department, and I didn't, I have questions about what are the government specifications. Okay, some other what questions? Other questions you have about this item? Um, I guess just like no, knowing what we know about lead in paint, just right. that just kind of brought some. It's just interesting, you know. You they have to tell you that there's lead paint in something when you buy a house. So just it's interesting that it's listed there proudly almost. Well, so do you have any questions based on the fact that it's listed and shown? Any questions based on I guess that? What year maybe lead paint became such a problem, or, or you know that people started regulating it? Okay. Here and where this is from, because somebody in the chat roll had noticed that there was a place, maybe. So, where in the U.S.? Okay. Yeah. Where was this posted? Where okay. Right. And where where is this being sold? Okay. So uh, we posted the link in the chat roll, and anyone can go and see this item. Uh, it's from a newspaper, the Evening Star newspaper in Washington D.C. Uh, it was published March 26, 1918, um, and so this is a full digitized page, part of our Chronicling America, and I say our, I'm talking about the Library of Congress's uh, site, um, where historic newspapers are digitized, and there are over 11 million pages that you can do a full text search. So I was looking for uh, items that actually did address lead paint, and I ran across this advertisement. 
And this advertisement is one that I think um, raises not just a lot of scientific questions, although as a science teacher, a high school science teacher who teaches chemistry and biology, I'm interested in some of the science ideas in this advertisement. But I'm also interested in some of the historical questions that you had about when was this, where was this, and what does the government have to do with this, which may be outside of some of the, you know, the, some of the core science ideas I might be thinking about if I was, if I was talking about mixtures, let's say, or uh, chemical compounds. So uh, some questions about when was this, and then how does that relate to uh, when did the government actually ban lead and paint? Um, I'll give you a hint. I think Nixon was involved in some of that, um, if that gives you a sense of this. Um, and some other questions that, uh, when, I, when I've worked with other people with this item, other questions that have come up are, you know, when did we know, uh, either as scientists or as a community, when would we know um, that, that lead was harmful in some way, or when might we know? Um, and then there's a question in the chat roll about would average consumers of the paint know the government specifications, right? So that's, a, that's another question that's coming up. And, and at that time, and would people know now? That's another question I think uh, people might have. So this is an example of um, a historical primary source that we would use um, to maybe kickstart kickstart some learning, and I would use it as a science teacher, and I think it maybe has some, some implications for some other classes as well. And I'd like to hand over to Kathy really quickly to talk about some of the tools that we use at the library um, to help students analyze and make sense of these kinds of primary sources. Thanks, Trey. Um, give me one second to do the screen share. Um, so we, uh, central to what we do in our work with teachers is to um, work with folks on how to analyze the sources. We've got millions and millions of resources available, but central to working with those materials is how do you analyze and get students to ask their own questions. Um, so we have developed an analysis of subject matter experts from around the library. And we've also developed teacher guides. Uh, so I want to share with you uh, where you can uh, get that information. Um, it's at loc.gov teacher slash teachers. Um, sorry, I'm having some difficulty in getting to the, the link. Um, but Trey, maybe you can put the link into the, uh, the chat roll. Um, and we worked with, as I mentioned, we worked with subject matter experts um, from the library's uh, divisions uh, in working with different materials uh, to come up with questions. Um, and when they get a piece of information into their uh, collections, what is the thinking process that goes around um, trying to discover information about the resource? And so we have 11 uh, different formats, uh, 10 with the, uh, with, you know, one with prints and photographs, one with maps, political cartoons, motion pictures, uh, song, uh, music and uh, and we also have a generic one and so they're available by PDF and an online tool and then what we do in our programming with teachers is to look at different teaching strategies um, and come to understand how the analysis of primary sources works with different teaching strategies like we're talking about today in project-based learning and so if you I'm showing the uh, and someone's, okay, someone's could mute me or mute themselves. Okay, so uh, I'm showing here the library site, and th this is what Kathy's talking about with the analysis tool. And so in this case, we're looking at newspapers. And so I would go to this tool, which is a PDF, and this is a teacher's guide. And if I zoom in, these are some questions that I would ask students to maybe get them to notice. Obviously, I was working with adults here and putting them on the spot, and so we weren't quite maybe uh, ready for this kind of uh, this kind of analysis. But these are questions that I would ask as a teacher of students, and really we would ask students to we would model for students first. But over time, students would begin to uh, jot down not just for what they notice, but also some inferences they're making or reflections, and then certainly ask some questions. And so these are these are prompts for teachers to help them. Uh, the thing that I'm really interested in, and something that we're going to come back to, is really this: these questions for further investigation. Uh, this first part is really generative, 
Uh, but this furthering investigation point is when you start to launch into what I would argue might be really important to get to the PBL piece, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. So we're just going to kind of table things right now with this further investigation, uh, and we're going to talk about where that fits in a little bit later. But uh, Beth, I'd like to continue this conversation about thinking about how primary sources support really deep learning with students. So if you could talk a little bit about some work that you're doing. Sure, Trey, I'd love to. Um, so with the, in the Ohio Writing Project, we have been um, working with content area teachers in lots of ways around you know, content literacy. And our journey into primary sources has been, I think, an interesting one that I'm, I'm interested to figure to think about that overlap with project-based learning. Because I would say kind of um, three or four things happened. And we'd been working with content area teachers on content literacy. But there was a real desire to move from just content literacy work that was you know, helping students read the textbook or helping students write just about their content learning to actually doing the work of the discipline. You know, doing history and doing the work that a historian does um, instead of only reading the, ma the material or memorizing it. So that desire to move from content strategies that teachers felt like, hey, those are great, but that's not kind of that's not everything that we do in history, or that's not everything that we do. Uh, these teachers were asking for, you know, more motivation, more engagement from students. And so the desire to do history. And also the idea that um, the critical thinking that historians do when they look across an issue, it's not really just memorizing some facts and dates. That, you know, teachers are starting to really ask for how can we help, how do we get students to dive in and ask these questions that have really intrigued us because, you know, when they want to create students in history that don't just know dates but that are interested by the story and all the stuff. So then, um, then a third thing happened which was teachers started really thinking about an inquiry stance in social studies, how to investigate or argue a position as opposed, how that is the work of a historian as opposed to just um, memorizing and that this inquiry stance was really just as much a part of social studies as it was science or some other kind of places. Um, and then a fourth thing happened and that was that students started having questions about the world today and then how do you investigate documents from today or things that were going on today with a kind of a critical eye. And by all of those things kind of happened and the way that we started thinking about it was, well, how do people do history? You know, the way like a Teaching American History grant might think about it. And so when, while we did this, we were going about it thinking, how can we use document, documents to raise critical thinking to help students do history, not just um, memorize it? And how can they make connections to the, their world and thinking today? And so it looks like this. So in one fourth grade class, you know, you could, they were studying Paul Revere and the American Revolution, and so they could have just memorized thoughts, but they wanted to engage their students in thinking about whether Paul Revere was a hero or not. So we had this question that got them all excited. And they looked at paintings, and they looked at uh, entries, like um, written like diary kind of entries. They, they looked at maps. They looked at, um, and they were stepping fourth graders through all of these primary source documents to look really closely at, well, what's it saying? What kind of character is being put forth by Paul Re about Paul Revere? And here's these fourth graders, like, arguing. He's a hero. He's not a hero. He's a hero, not a hero. And they were thinking about the documents when they were doing this. Um, or, like, um, we were working with a 10th grade class, and the, this teacher wanted students to do the work of you know, thinking about what it was like for women traveling west and this idea of how do you find out. I could just give you some notes and write it down, which is basically what I'm feeling like I might have done as a student. But what this teacher decided to do is come up with a triad of documents. And I think that was one of the things that happened. Like, you needed multiple documents to kind of understand the work. And the, one of the primary source documents were diary entries that were... Um, women traveling west and what they were actually writing. Um, and then another document which was, was super interesting was an index of 
like how many children, the ages of the women, how people died, when they died, when they left, where they arrived. And so students have these indexes spread all out, looking at them, trying to make sense of what was happening. And then they added images and photographs. And we went through a process really similar to what you just shared, which I think is so smart. So I'm lo I love that you just shared all those ideas. We, you know, we were observing it, saying, what does it tell us? What was the context? And then we would layer it with writing. You know, we're the writing project, so that's what we do, right? Like, so what do you know? And then what do you think it was like? And then what do these diaries tell you? So what do you think was it like? And what do these indexes now tell you? What do you think it was like? And now what do these photographs tell you? In the end, the students came up with this like really rich understanding, and they cleared up some of their own misconceptions, right? They thought, wow, we really thought such and such about women traveling west that everybody died of an illness or something and they really found out that people were run over all the time and kids dropped out of wagons and like so they were really interested and then I think thinking about this primary source work so so we had the fourth graders right and they were just like super engaged because they were trying to do this argument on this basic level and they were using primary sources as their text and then we had these you know high schoolers doing this work around really trying to understand what was going on at a time period around primary sources and they were doing the work of a historian and then we were with a class trying to figure out it was a, it was a little while ago and it was when those fires at the Bangladesh garment factories happened does anybody remember that it was like it was a couple years ago and you know all these questions came up about like what happened and why and we took that moment to dig into primary source documents around the triangle shirtwaist factory fire to figure out what was what was really being said what happened what kind of regulations happened and it helped those students make sense of what they were seeing now and kind of make a case about what should happen like a public argument like here's what's going on now but they used their primary source documents to understand the history of it of working conditions in order to understand the world around them and you know I guess the hope is that they can develop those inquiry skills and how to read audience and context because right we teach them that what's the context where's the source was this a public or private audience who what was it written for all of those things we hopefully if we teach them that they'll be able to use that in today's world to figure out why people are saying what they're saying and make connections um, so I think that so that whole experience it was really driven out of teachers wanting students to do real history work and then it, I think it shows up in lots of different ways but it almost always revolves on them like analyzing the documents in lots of ways cool thanks so much Beth and I'm gonna turn it over to Regina now to do a little bit of talking about what she's doing with teachers and students around primary sources in Georgia Okay, so um, in my particular district, we noticed, um, of course, according to our data, that our students really weren't getting those social studies concepts. So we had to really, you know, look at some of the practices that our teachers were using, and um, overwhelmingly, they rely on lecturing um, to the point we kind of call it death by PowerPoint. And, you know, not to take anything away from lecturing, but we noticed that it really didn't engage our students, and it also didn't get them to that level of critical thinking that was needed to um, really master those standards that they were being tested on. So um, in my particular district, we have implemented a DBQ program um, with a lot of analysis of primary sources that begins in, on the kindergarten level and goes all the way up through their 12th grade year. And I hope that they will, um, one, be exposed to more critical thinking skills and two, um, really be engaged in the thinking that's required around the social studies and the histories. Um, so currently our DBQ program um, provides teachers with an alternative way 
to teach the content other than lecturing. Um, so when we started the process, we really didn't, you know, know exactly what we wanted it to look like, and so we didn't have that many scaffolds. But what we did know was that, you know, students have things like science labs and things that engage them in other content areas. So we began to think, well, what would a science lab look like in a social studies classroom? And that's um, what birth the whole primary source activities that we do with our students. So um, I'm going to try to do the screen share just to show you a document that we use when we um, have students to really critically think and look at these documents. And let me see if I can get it. So um, if you can see this, uh, this is a resource from the Stanford History Group called the Stanford Steps. And um, it basically outlines the four ways that we want our students to analyze primary sources. So um, it went very, very, very well with our students. Um, it got them more engaged in the content that we were trying to get them to master. However, what we did notice was that some of it on, at the beginning stayed very, very surface level um, as far as the academic discourse and the way students were thinking about these sources. So we wanted to make sure that we're going a little bit deeper. So what we did was take these four steps outlined by the Stanford History Group and we added some guiding questions and I'm going to try to do another share if it will let me. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure and I might have to come back to it. But um but yeah, I'll, I'll figure out how to share the, the next document. But basically, we created guiding questions for each one of those stages of the Stanford Steps to analyzing primary sources. And what we saw was an immediate increase in the academic discourse. Um, like Beth mentioned, you, heard, you hear students now debating what they think each primary source is trying to tell them. And also, when we have students um, in a classroom that is not so diverse, this increases students' um, ability to look at different points of views and not just their own or the ones that shared by their classmates, looking at primary sources from different perspectives on one particular topic. So that's where we are currently in our um, rollout of our primary source analysis. And even on the kindergarten level, they may not be able to verbalize or write out, but they can definitely match um, the way that they're feeling about a primary source or what they think the primary source is going to do. So we had to make sure that it was developmentally appropriate for the grade level, but still had the same goals of having them critically think and really analyze the sources to be able to get the content that is needed without the teacher just spitting out fact after fact after fact after fact. And what we've seen is that it's really helped with our students' retention um, because they'll say, yeah, that's, that, that's when we learn about the primary source concerning Lincoln or things of that nature. They have a schema to then tie what they're learning to. So primary sources in the social studies classroom is our science lab, if you will. I need to unmute myself. Thank you so much, Regina. And uh, so both you and Beth have just so so much better than I could have ever done this. Talked about really why historical primary sources in a history classroom and a social studies classroom are just so important. Whether it's for uh, helping students generate and make arguments and engage in argumentation, um, incredible. But then also this idea about thinking like a historian and. Uh, thinking critically, and then this piece that stands out to me, Regina, about that our classrooms sometimes are probably set up to be way too teacher-centered than maybe they should be, and so how can we use historical primary sources to really put the focus, spotlight back on the students and have the students generating the ideas, connecting, and uh, really thinking. And so thank you both so much. And that really, this science lab connection will probably bring me back now to some science um, examples that I have that I'd like to share with you. 
uh, because I've been thinking, so I've been lucky enough to work with the library this year as a teacher in residence, and my job really was to think about how can historical documents, how are they not just in a history classroom and maybe an ELA classroom, but they're also maybe in a science classroom. And so for me, a lot of it was less about, I mean, there were aspects of thinking like a historian that I think were important to me, but I also just wanted my students to think like good thinkers in a lot of ways, right? And so um, I was playing with the boundaries of some disciplines a little bit. And so an example of that, um, I, I work in a school uh, in West Philadelphia and had a, a couple of colleagues who were so wonderful to allow me to uh, introduce some historical primary sources related to World War One. And the World War I primary sources were posters and newspapers, um, all from the Library of Congress. And uh, you can see here, uh, there's a poster of a soldier. This is a war relief effort poster um, and a painting that was done. And just a really gorgeous painting. And so the teacher was able to look at this and talk about structure and function. But she also is an anatomy teacher. So this is an anatomy teacher do working with these primary sources can uh, introduce this concept of World War One and the idea that prosthetic limbs are actually uh, really big and really important during this time. Um, and that was a connection that was made to the history class because those same juniors who were in anatomy were also taking a history course where they were discussing World War One. So, the, so there were questions that came up in the history class about the cost of war, about uh, how we talk about people who maybe are missing limbs, um, so thinking about ability and disability. Uh, and then there were even questions, this was an all-boys school, uh, there were questions about how masculinity was tied to ability, and, 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 the, and there were questions about race that also uh, came up in the newspaper articles about how people were described. So this was a really rich set of uh, resources, and in the anatomy class, they really uh, were part of further research that was done about prosthetic limbs, maybe for the military, but for other purposes. And it eventually led to the creation of prosthetic limb models that the students made in their course. So not only was this a PBL, uh, which is initially how this project started out, it was PBL where kids were uh, integrating engineering with the anatomy and the science content, thinking about structures and functions, uh, choosing materials that mimic structures and functions in the human body. But on top of it, we layered this historical scenario and thinking about really how, you know, when were prosthetic limbs really, really important and when did the innovation begin? And the questions that emerged were, well, so how are the materials different today? Or do we have the same types of um, needs because of war today? There are all kinds of questions that students could ask based on the primary sources. And this, uh, I presented it kind of linear, but really what I, what I think happens and what you want to happen is that this is really just a very cyclical and, and uh, process where the, the primary sources are really in conversation with the building that's happening. So students can get ideas about how do you strap on some of these devices or how are they connected to the human body. And you can't see, but this poster talks about, the one on the far left talks about how um, where the prosthetic limb is connected to the body, the body changes over time. That is a very real consideration for someone who's building prostheses. And so um, that comes up, though, from this poster. Um, and then, again, like I said, the history teacher is engaging students with other questions that are more historical that relate to these documents. And so... What I'm doing here, what I was trying to do with students and with the teachers is, you know, on one hand, yes, we're looking at these documents through a historical lens, we're applying some of the thinking tools, but they're also part of this bigger cycle of, of making and creating and doing some engineering that's integrated with science. And we just kind of blew up some of the borders uh, among the disciplines, which, you know, creates a lot of questions for teachers and for kids because the kids are saying, wait, why are we talking about this in two different classes now and, and what's going on? And so uh, just really, just a really incredible way to, I think, to open up student questioning and creativity and really asking questions and developing solutions that are very relevant today how we talk about ability, how we talk about masculinity, how we design um, next generation tools for people, those are all, and, and how do we deal with war, these are all questions that are very, very relevant um, to students today. And as we start to transition to thinking about letters to the next president, there might, there might be something, uh, you know, something in this uh, here as well for students to think about. 
So I, I won't spend too much time on this, but one of the things, and I, I did a webinar about this earlier uh, in the year that maybe Kathy uh, could put a link up to if we have it. Um, so thinking about PBL, there are a lot of different resources out there for PBL and, and people describing what PBL is. I basically um, took a couple of ideas from uh, the Buck Institute for Education, and they have these essential project design elements for PBL that I really like. And then also, um, Savory wrote a piece back in 2006 um, kind of defining PBL and giving the history. And so what I've done is I've kind of said, hmm, how can I take this pretty complicated cycle and instructional model and uh, break it down into some components that seem to just work really nicely with primary sources. So with project or problem-based learning, usually there's an upfront problem, and that problem is introduced and the unit starts. And then as part of the learning, there's this ongoing inquiry and research process that's happening. Um, students, uh, you know, there might be some mini lectures, but there also is a lot of um, students generating new ideas and, and brainstorming. And then eventually you're moving towards some kind of solution or some kind of product in response to that initial problem that was posed as part of this unit. So this model then uh, I would apply to thinking about primary sources. For instance, I might say, hmm, I could use this 1919 historic photograph of what, as you analyze it closer, is actually an electric car. And so this might be a starting point for a unit, thinking about engineering, thinking about energy transformations and physics, um, that's very much tied to questions of today in, you know, so what should our energy policies be like um, for electric cars versus gasoline? Or how do I engineer an electric car today? And what are the constraints and what are the challenges? So this might, this photograph might be part of kicking off some kind of problem or project-based learning unit. Then I could also layer in some additional I think my slides are out of order, yes. I can layer in some additional primary sources like historical newspapers that further lend some ideas and some background information about electric cars. In this case, we're talking late 1800s to early 1900s. All kinds of questions students have about why, why don't we have, why, you know, why did we not have more electric cars now? Why is it that we, um, there was this big gap in human history or American history where we don't have electric cars? And so it could, these documents become part of this process where, you know, I haven't done this with students, but I'm thinking there are a ton of different projects that I could come up with as my final solution um, in, terms, uh, in terms of like what they could make or, or what they could create as part of this unit. But the primary sources are really a way to both kick off the unit and then also to uh, provide some further research about electric cars. In other cases, I'm going to scroll through some of these, in other cases I'd argue that something like a political cartoon actually gives you an idea for a final product. So not only could it kick off learning, but then as part of their project or problem-based learning, if they're making an argument about something, then maybe a political cartoon is something that they come up with. So in this case, the, the political cartoons I pulled, one is about water quality, and this is from the 1800s in London, um, and certainly water quality is very much in the news. Um, and is very big uh, for communities. And then on the right, this is 1905, I believe, uh, concussions in football. Again, you just got to look at Will Smith's new movie to realize that concussions in football are very much still a conversation that's happening. And in some cases, maybe a political cartoon is, is good enough for an outcome for one of these projects to, for students to make a statement um, as part of PBL and as part of a wider public campaign. So I'm sharing these uh, just to kind of open up the discussion and start making some connections between the historical documents um, that we've been talking about and then thinking about how do they support problem and project-based learning. And so I'm going to turn this over now to Casey uh, to talk a little bit about some work that she's done with students out in California. Thanks, Trey. Um, I start every class with 15 minutes of current events. And every day we do a different news story or a couple of very short news stories. And on in April on Equal Pay Day, I had my students um, my students do an Equal Pay news story. Um, and I work at an all girls school, so it got the girls really fired up about women not being paid uh, the same amount of money as as men. And I challenged the girls to write a letter to the president, vice president, or senators, or um, leader, our, our leader Pelosi, um, 
And they did. And one of my students, and I said, I'll help you. I'll edit it. I'll find all the addresses. I'll stamp the, the letters, whatever you need to do. So one of my students wrote a really powerful letter, and we sent it to Leader Pelosi, Senator Feinstein, and President Obama and Vice President Biden. And she got a really, really powerful letter back from Nancy Pelosi. And it was addressed... It addressed everything that she wrote in the letter, and we shared it with our class, and it was just this amazing moment. Um, you know, I, I really believe in teaching the kids what's going about what's going on in the world, um, and my, I have a really supportive head of school, and her comment to me is always, well, what's next? What are we going to do? They're informed, which is great, but how are we going to help them make social change? How are we going to bring about social justice with these really well-informed middle school girls? So it really felt to me like this moment of, wow, like this actually helped take this to a next level. Um, and when she's in eighth grade, she'll hopefully be able to meet Nancy Pelosi when she goes to Washington, D.C., and that could be such an amazing um, connection for her, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and then when I was at the Library of Congress at the Summer Institute, I created a lesson using primary sources um, in my class. Uh, and the topic is women gaining the right to vote. And we're going to spend a day a week until the election doing different election-related activities. So I created what could be probably like a five-week, you know, really long extended lesson that I'm so pumped for my girls to, to experience. Um, and the final, the, the second to final product will be a letter to Woodrow Wilson as a perspective from the women's suffrage movement. So they'll take on a perspective and write a letter to Woodrow Wilson. And then in the end, I'm going to have them do a letter to the presidents um, on a topic that they feel really passionate about. Um, and that will be the kind of final product of of what we do with this lesson. So I'm going to, you know, incorporate the past but also try to swing it around to what's going on in our world today, why do we care about this, um, how is this going to affect your life and your children's lives and, you know, in the future here today. Um, and we'll be, we'll have a lot of current events under our belt at that point, so they will have some really strong issues that I hope that they can write about. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to use the letters to, to the president um, that I, I learned about at the Library of Congress. I think it's going to be a really powerful tool for my students. Thank, uh, oh, sorry, keep going. No, just if there's anything else, you know, if, anything else you want me to add. Well, so I, I mean, I think uh, just hearing the connection that you're making between a historical event and the primary sources about women's suffrage and then thinking about, you know, the people that took action during that time and then, you know, capitalizing on that to think about, okay, so what issues can we continue to advocate for today um, just makes a ton of sense and fits, I think, really nicely with this theme of how do we use historical documents to support some kind of bigger community engagement, social justice action um, that's very much in line with problem and project-based learning. Right, and, I think uh, that that's a hard thing to do. The what's next has been really hard for me. You know, I believe they're informed, but the what's next question has always been kind of, it stumped me. So I love, you know, coming up with new ideas about how to take this further. Great. And actually, I want to pull Regina in then to talk about also, so both Casey and Regina were at our Summer Institute for Teachers at the library this summer, and so pull in and talk about, so I think, Regina, you had been doing some work around Hiroshima. Do you want to talk about that really quickly? And you're muted. Right. So um, as you said, um, typically our 11th grade U.S. history teachers teach students about the uh, World War II and ultimately about the dropping of the atomic bombs in Japan. Um, but it's very factual. You know, we um, invaded um, the Pacific. It wasn't working, so we dropped the bombs in Japan and a lot of civilians died. So it's very factual, and what I see is students not really understanding different perspectives and points of view. 
So during the Library of Congress um, Institute, I basically created a different way of approaching the atomic bomb where students will look at primary sources from different perspectives so that they don't over-villainize Truman, but basically have to see both sides of the story, then decide if he was a hero or a villain. And um, just to give you an idea, I found a um, on the Library of Congress site a letter from Albert Einstein urging Truman to go ahead and begin looking at ways to defeat Japan and looking at ways to use uranium to create weaponry and really urging him to create this atomic bomb. But I also found a letter urging um, Truman not to do it, um, signed by a lot of well-respected Americans saying this will be taking us down the wrong path. Once we go down this path, we can't turn back. And so I really want them to see both sides of the coin. Um, and then to go into PBL, I was thinking about this whole idea of relevance because, you know, in social studies, students always ask, why do we have to learn about this? It happened so long ago. But it's really um, relevant to what's going on now in the nuclear arms race and testing and different countries that have nuclear weapons. So I really want to make it more relevant to them. And um, being at the Library of Congress and listening to um, what Casey's doing with her students, I thought about having them, one, survey different people, maybe from the neighborhood or that they know, and just asking them how would they feel um, about nuclear weapons being used and are they necessary and things of that nature, just to see what different perspectives are out there about this weaponry. And then actually form their own opinion now that they have heard from different points of view and they know how it will impact different people, whether they be military, whether they be the family of military, whether they be um, people from other countries living in America that we may bomb, um, just to get different points of view and then have them write a letter to the president either in favor of continuing our research into using nuclear weapons or either urging the president to refrain from using nuclear weapons and to find another solution. So basically trying to make it relevant for students, but trying to do it in a way so that they're not biased. And primary sources help to take that bias out of the content by showing them different perspectives of what happened in history. Great. Thank you. So I think we've, over, over the course of this conversation, we've tried to establish this connection between really looking at these historical documents and then thinking about how does that then position us to make decisions and make choices and take action, take informed action, if we're talking about the C3 framework, uh, take informed action today as citizens. And so I'd like to bring everyone in on the conversation at this point to think about, so we've talked about primary sources, we've then tried to move into PBL examples as well. And I'm just kind of, I'm wondering aloud as I'm talking to colleagues or if I'm talking to principals, trying to get them on board with this, um, these ideas, you know, what is it that uh, both using primary sources and PBL, what is it that they have in common that we think is just really powerful, right? There's, I think they're, I think they're sort of trying to do some similar things. So what are you, as you're, as you're listening to this, what are you thinking about that these uh, these two kind of approaches to teaching, which are not different and not divergent, but what do they have really that are in common? Well, I think primary sources encourage questions, and questions are the foundation of project and problem-based learning, basically. And having the kids come up with those questions on their own, based on their own um, assessment of the document, is going to be the most powerful and lend, um, lend to, or encourage the uh, highest amount of engagement, in in, um, in my experience, mm -hmm. and 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 you know them coming up with the questions themselves from the documents is so much more powerful than me posing a question at the front of the classroom and having them come to some kind of a solution. I think there's an overlap. I love that idea. And I think there's an overlap, too, in this stance of um, not one right answer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that so with primary sources, when you see many of them, you start to understand, like, oh, I see. Somebody might have thought the Nanking Massacre was not. Like, people have different thoughts of it or the Boston Massacre or whatever. And so I think the same thing is with... Um, with project or problem-based learning is this idea that there's not a right answer you're looking for. 
the theory, that whole like inquiry stance of multiple perspectives and ways in and ways out. Hmm. And also the respect of other people's opinions. I think when we use primary sources, it brings in so many different perspectives. And because they're asking questions and trying to gain a better understanding, they become a little bit more open to others' opinions and not so, you know, this is what I believe, this is right, and I don't care what you have to say kind of attitude. But they're also, they become a little bit more open to different points of views and different perspectives on um, different topics because um, they get to see the history behind what was going on and it's not just fact after fact after fact but they become like Beth said more engaged into the content that they're learning about. And it's amazing how accessible it is to most students. Mm -hmm. um, you know a, a dyslexic student that's going to have a hard time reading a newspaper article can look at a at a document or a, a photograph and um, and feel a lot of success which is going to feel really good for that student. And, and that accessibility piece I think is something that I want to continue to talk about because I think that these multiple entry points and multiple pathways through the learning but also just entry points into some learning into some questions I think that's what these what primary sources do and I think that's what PBL does and we're just too many times I felt like in my classroom we were just all trying to go the same on the same path and none of us were together and 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 do we have to be together and did we have to but and so there there are some goals that I have as a teacher but these uh, primary sources and then the PBL project outcomes you know they just provide a lot more flexibility and a lot more ways for kids to kind of latch on to what we're what we're trying to do and also honestly are pushing me to to question what's even what what am I teaching in the first place and why and why does it matter right so I mean kids ask that question and it's easy for me to maybe make a cursory connection but if they're making the connections through these historical documents and then through these projects that are really relevant and require them to make something um, you know that I think it does so much more than me trying to offer some really poor excuse for why this why this stuff that we're learning about matters definitely what you just said, Troy, made me think of what Casey did and the letters that, that um, Regina did because that question of why something matters, right? If I can, as a student, can see that something in history or in the past did matter because something, one thing happened and then as a result something else happened, it would give my um, product, my thing I'm making, authentic purpose because maybe it'll matter too. Because I could actually see that something happened once and maybe something will happen again. and. I can see that in Casey's example, which was so amazing. So students would be like, well, of course we could do that too. Of course we can write letters and say something because they did it before, so we can do it. And that really does give a reason for why it matters. Uh, for both just like the letters to the next president kind of idea, but something even bigger. Well, and just in your class in general, I, I end every single assessment I give with the question, what's the most important thing you learned and why do you care? And I just think having the kids make those connections that, oh, wow, you know, the northern colonies did this, and wow, they still do that today. They still, that's still how they make money. Um, and I've been there, and I've experienced that. It just makes it all so much more relevant to them, and they, you know, they're just more engaged. They're more excited about it. And speaking of some relevance, I do want to put a plug in, and Kathy, maybe you can throw these links up in the chat roll, but if you, uh, we've talked about uh, women's suffrage, and we have a great primary source set um, that is related to this topic, where uh, the library has curated a set of historical primary sources that all relate to women's suffrage. Uh, that's probably already in. I'm also thinking about the immigration set. Um, there are a couple things on assimilation and immigration. Those are very relevant topics today and very much in line with um, the Letters to the Next President campaign, I think. Um, and so certainly um, those are some other things uh, from the library that might really spur some incredible Letters to the Next President. And then I'll also plug, um, like I said, uh, I've written some blogs, and if you search our blog at the Library of Congress, um, things about lead paint and concussions and water quality um, and electric cars, these are all things that, as a science teacher, I would certainly um, think about and, and love to use with students 
Uh, the question I have, though, is really all of you are in situations where either you're supporting teachers through a writing project site or from a district level, or you're working with colleagues in your buildings. And I'm wondering about, you know, what does it look like to support teachers? Because I, I'm hearing, you know, we, we could go into a school and the principal or the teachers could be all about PBL, right? Or principal or teachers could be all about primary sources. What we're doing is we're saying, hey, Let's, uh, let's not just do one thing, let's do a couple different things, but then that means you need a whole bunch of, you need more toolkits, you need more, um, you know, you just need more resources as well. So I'm wondering about what are your initial thoughts uh, or your experiences with supporting teachers and doing this, this kind of deep learning that we've been describing? And there's no one answer, I'm sure, so. <laughs> I think just in just showing or you know teachers I have I work with um, a, another social studies teacher that teaches seventh and eighth grade and some language arts teachers and religion teachers and you know I think just giving them access to to the primary sources on, on the website and the primary source analysis tool um, is going to be huge they I think most people probably don't even know it's there. So I think that is going to be really huge, um, for a first step for me, at least. Um, and for me, um, the biggest thing for, for supporting my teachers is to really get that buy-in um, and show them. What I've started doing is recording their classes prior to them implementing primary sources and project-based learning and then we'll plan together, um, look at the primary sources, actually, like Casey said, have the teachers go through, analyze them, do what they want the students to do, think about what could be next as far as um, project-based learning, and then I record their classes after they implement these strategies and just have them to self-reflect on what you notice as being different. Um, things that they say, is the, especially the academic discourse from students, um, the engagement from students, and the critical thinking um, that students have to go through. You know, typically our students believe anything that's on the internet, but having them go through these processes and having them to formulate questions and critically think, they begin to change the way that they research and say, okay, well, who made this? What might their bias be? Um, you know, how is this affecting us today? Does it have implications in what's going in today? And once teachers see that, they get that um, buy-in. We get that buy-in because the class is so much more engaging for students and they want to do more. They want to take it out into the community and try to see what the community thinks about it. And because our community is not as diverse as some other communities, we're able to bring out issues that are affecting different types of people in America, even though it's not affecting us in our community here. And the one, oh, sorry, one thing Ms. Warner Teach uh, just uh, mentioned via Twitter in the chat rule is thinking about as a teacher, the biggest question is there are so many demands with the curriculum, how do I fit it all in, right? And I think one of the points you made is that it's really about integrating and not adding. And so um, it, it and there will be some things that get cut, but that's a, I think that point should get surfaced here. Right, right. And I was yeah. just going to add the idea that uh, that these that idea of integrating is awesome, and what um, Regina and Casey shared was how to really support teachers. And I think that question about help talking with administration seems important. And maybe one of the ways we do that is to really help administrators see how project-based learning, primary source document work, how that work goes together helps them support the student they want to walk out of their school. You know, when you talk to administrators and say, what kind of student do you want to walk out of these doors? Um, they'll, we want a, a student that can be civically engaged in the world, that can read what's going on, that can talk about what's going on. And the, the work that was all shared today, there's no better way to kind of get to that as a supplement to the content work and all the other work that's going on and integrated. So uh, helping admin just see that this is helping students become the people and the thinkers that it helps them become, I think, is a great way to talk about that. And it hits lots of standards in most states. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is important. All right. 
thank you all. We're actually at 5 o'clock, and I don't want to take any more time. Um, so I do want to just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for participating. And for everybody out there, thank you for watching. Um, I, I'm ready to go for another hour, but <laughs> I just appreciate it so much. If you'd like to keep up to date on future opportunities and webinars, sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org. And you can follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at innovates underscore ed. Uh, also, don't forget to check out the free teaching resources from the Library of Congress, including the primary source sets uh, that we mentioned, which are curated sets of primary sources, as well as the primary source analysis tool. And that's all on the teachers page at loc.gov teachers. You can also follow the library's educational outreach team on Twitter at teachinglc. And then look at the teachers page uh, soon for more information about the free online conference that's happening for educators uh, from the Library of Congress October 25th and 26th. And we'll post links to those in the chat roll. Um, thank you all so very much. It was a fabulous conversation. And uh, enjoy your evening.